This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. Over the past three decades, many World War II monuments from the Yugoslav era have deteriorated or been neglected or even purposely damaged or destroyed. After the 1990s, there was a kind of resemantization of history and nationalists started to ruin these uh, monuments. A number of times on this show, I've already contrasted the physical, cultural, and political decline of these monuments with the exponential growth of pop cultural interest in them. These monuments, however, are not just objects of popular fascination, photography, or graphic art. Artists have utilized Yugoslav socialist monuments as elements in their works, as canvases or as stages, if you will, to criticize official policies or inaction that led to the sorry state the monuments are in. They have indeed created a respectable body of work that can be considered counter-memorial in itself, said art historian Sanja Horvatinčić, whom you may remember from episode 5, Future Monuments, in an interview for the magazine Historical Expertise. She added that, in the future, this very kind of artistic production will be evaluated as the monuments of this era. In other words, in the process of performing artistic interventions at socialist-era monuments, these artists create contemporary monuments our separate relations to the place connect us into being able to together form something which will continue on in the future and which will be a bit better than not doing anything and remaining in this status quo sort of position. Whether you call it political art or activism or whatever, this kind of artistic and artful engagement with monuments, with memory, with memory politics, this creation of new monuments not only points to problems, but also, and perhaps more importantly, raises questions. What approach to these sites, to thinking about history, to memory studies, can we get from imagining these connections actually being possible? Today on Remembering Yugoslavia, artistic interventions at socialist-era World War II monuments and their meaning. A Croatian government minister, multi-ethnic ghosts, and anonymous geologists also make an appearance. A couple of notes before we get to it. In addition to great conversations, you'll hear two songs. Termopil by the Croatian singer-songwriter Sara Renar is about the famous Greek battle. I read in the song some parallels with the partisans' fight in the People's Liberation War, as well as allusions to commemoration and remembrance. It's over, they're coming, there is no saving us. It's over, what remains is the memory of us. Abre Makedonce, performed by the Pula-based choir's Bor Praxa, is a Macedonian battle song about fighting for freedom. This will make sense later on in the show. Follow Sara Renar and Zbor Praxa on social media and, more importantly, buy their music. I've included all the links in the show notes. Finally, as always, this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia is brought to you by you. Thank you to everyone who has signed up to support me and Remembering Yugoslavia on Patreon or donated on the website via PayPal. If you like the show and wish to support its production, join these generous people at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia or donate one time at paypal.me slash rememberingyu. That's remembering why you. Sinisha Labrovic was born in 1965 in Sinj, a small town near Split, Croatia. He is a Croatian language and literature teacher by training and has been a freelance artist since 2000. My main practice is uh, performance, but I also do some multimedia works, uh, interventions, uh, video in the field of, uh, let's say, politically engaged or uh, socially engaged or uh, socially conscious 
performances. The Museum and Galleries of Ljubljana in 2018 called Sinisha currently the most socially and politically engaged Croatian artist. One of his main tools is his own body. Some of his best-known performances include, in 2010, artist sells his skin at a discount, whereby he had parts of his skin surgically removed, then cured, cut into the shapes of a square, a circle, and a triangle, and affixed to three canvases. The same year, a boxing match for the title of the Minister of Culture of the Republic of Croatia was exactly what it says, except the then-minister failed to show, and so Sinisha declared forfeit, claimed the belt, and showed up for work at the ministry the following Monday. But before any of that, his first performance as an artist was Bandaging the Wounded in his hometown Sinj. On the uh, 22nd of uh, June in 2000, June 22nd, it was the day of the anti-fascist uprising in Croatia in uh, 1941, when the communist and other anti-fascists uh, uprised against the Nazis in uh, former Yugoslavia and against the collaborators. So uh, in 1952, there was a monument raised in memory of anti-fascist struggle. In Sinj, in the then Socialist Republic of Croatia. The monument in the city center consists of two bronze statues made by Ivan Mirkovic in the style of socialist realism. On a central plinth, a soldier holds a flag with arms raised to the sky. On a smaller platform below, a seated woman comforts a wounded partisan in her arms. It is this figure Sinisha Labrovic used in his performance. There was a lot of these kind of monuments who commemorated uh, anti-fascist struggle during the Second World War in former Yugoslavia. And uh, after the 1990s, there was a kind of uh, resemantization of history and nationalists tried to establish another reading of that history. So they accused anti-fascists and especially communists that they are against the Croatians and especially they are against Croatian state or, or Croatians as independent nation. And uh, they started to ruin these uh, monuments. They put explosive in this monument in Sinj, but they didn't destroy it uh, totally. So monument stayed, the sculpture stayed after that, but it looked like it is uh, wounded. So it shows already a uh, wounded person. It is kind of uh, like Pieta. What I did is uh, that I treated monument as a wounded person. So I cleaned it the garbage which was in the monument, and then I uh, cleaned the wounds with the water or with the, with the gel which we use uh, for cleaning the wounds of the human person. And, uh, and then I wrapped all the monument, I bandaged all the monument as we would uh, somebody who is wounded. So I wanted to commemorate again this... Uh, anti-fascist day, but I also want to express uh, my, my attitude that I'm against this uh, practice of totally destroying uh, this monument. What was the immediate response to your performance? Did you have any spectators? Was there any fallout later? I believe it, it was on uh, Sunday and uh, there was no so much people there because I, I, I started when it was time for lunch, but mostly on that day there was no reaction. This building of the uh, city government was very close to the park, 
and they reacted. They were very confused and uh, maybe even uh, angry, and they called police. So po police started to explore who do this, and they called the guy who I asked to film, to document this action. He told them that they should uh, address these questions to me, but they never, I believe that, that they understood in, uh, in the meantime that there is nothing to investigate in this case. So they stopped it. Uh, but uh, I had some consequences. Some people later told me that some nationalist uh, was prepared uh, to attack me or to beat me or, I don't know, to do something about it because uh, it was in the newspapers and uh, they were upset about this section. And uh, I was accused as a communist. I was uh, accused as a, that I'm not Croatian. I'm not good Croatian, especially I'm... Uh, Yugoslavian. In Croatia, the Catholic Church is uh, in uh, great power uh, behind the scene. So, uh, more or less, I couldn't get a job in the field of education for, uh, I don't know, next 10 years, 8-10 years. So, I gave up on this uh, career. I worked as a, as a replacement to some people when they are ill or pregnant. I could work instead of them, but I couldn't get a permanent job. The story reminds me of what used to happen in socialist countries like mine, Czechoslovakia, where people who ran into conflict with the powers that be would be barred from certain levels of employment, certain professions. According to Sinisha, this was the case in socialist Yugoslavia as well, albeit on a smaller scale and in much milder form. But the practice has continued in independent Croatia, to different degrees in different areas, except now it's the Catholic Church that's holding the reins behind or along the dominant right-wing party. I am curious about the monument today, 20 years later. The, the Ivan Mirkovic monument is still there. It's uh, in a little bit uh, worse situation than uh, in the time when I had this uh, intervention. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, still there. Uh, it's, it's in the park, so they can't use more or less any kind of excuse to remove it because he, the, the monument is not in the state that it's uh, that it can put people in danger and uh, more or less there is no need to remove it to build something there or 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 or, or something and i believe that um, my action also helped that uh, this monument is uh, still there Sinisha moved to Zagreb in 2007 and made it as an artist. In 2011, he was invited to present his work at the Istanbul Biennale and in 2012 at the Venice Biennale of Architecture. And that a little bit helped me to survive in the field of art. And uh, yeah, some other works also uh, gained some, some recognition. So I succeed in a way to, to live out of art. Until 2018, when Sinisha moved to Berlin. I'll feature the story of Sinisha's emigration in a dedicated episode on the topic, sometime in late spring. For now, know that Sinisha made it as an artist in Germany as well. He had his best year, in fact, last year, odd as it may sound. Smack in the middle of the pandemic, on July 17, 2020, Sinisha performed his most recent artistic intervention in Croatia. Not quite at a monument per se, perhaps just a metaphorical one, but just as critical. I organized it to move Croatian parliament for one millimeter. I made investigation with some people on the position of the Croatian parliament in the universe, the connections with the planets or uh, the day of establishment. 
and its horoscope showed that uh, parliament is not in the good position and if we move this parliament in the specific time for one millimeter then the parliament uh, should become independent and work uh, not as a tool for corruption tool for banditism uh, it will became the parliament who will establish justice in uh, croatia so i organized this uh, moving parliament for one millimeter that it should be in a good good position from the point of the stars of the planets and everything one millimeter wasn't sinisha's first performance at the croatian sabor in 2012, he protested the law banning public gatherings on St. Mark's Square, where the parliament is located, by urinating in a circle to mark his own territory while people would be allowed to gather. After the performance of One Millimeter... I was a little bit acu- accused that I uh, guilty for this uh, earthquakes in, in Croatia, in Zagreb and, and Bania, because of the <laughs> moving the parliament for the One Millimeter. Bandaging the wounded may not have caused a physical earthquake two decades ago, but the performance continues to reverberate. It is now one of the most cited works and a kind of a reference point for artistic interventions at Yugoslav-era World War II monuments. Gotovo je samo ostaje sjećanje na nas. 
August 20, 2018, the Skopje-based independent theater of Navigator Cvetko performed the play Salonika City of Ghosts, Christians, Muslims and Jews, 1430-1950, at the Monument to Freedom in Kochani, North Macedonia. The play is based on a historical book from Mark Mazover. Natalia Teodosieva was one of the actors in the theater troupe performing Salonika City of Ghosts. And the story is about um, metropolis, I mean Salonika, the city of different religions and ethnicities where Egyptian merchants, Spanish Jews, Orthodox Greeks, Sufi dervishes, Albanian brigands all rubbed shoulders, you know, lived and worked together as one. Uh, how this bustling, uh, cosmopolitan and tolerant world emerged and then just vanished, disappeared, you know, under the pressure of modern nationalism, I guess. The text is developed by Rusomir Bogdanovsky. The director of its name is Slobodan Unkovsky. He's a quite well-known theater director in Macedonia. And um, the music is played live by a musician called Slatko Rigansky. That's Elena Chemerska, an artist who was the creative engine behind the organization of the performance at the Monument to Freedom. The play was originally played at the Jewish Museum in Skopje, and that's where I saw it. And I really, really much enjoyed the theater play because it's really nice how it deals with the convoluted history of the Balkans in quite like this humorous way. The municipality of Kochani and the Friedrich Ebert Foundation provided a portion of the funding for the performance. One of the reasons the play resonated in multi-ethnic North Macedonia, which is dealing with nationalism of its own, was that it's about a multi-ethnic community that was forever changed by nationalist forces. And so I, I really thought that if these characters were to come alive within this scene that's got its own characters that are inscribed in this monument in the mosaics, but also our ghosts or the ghosts of all the people who had their own experiences in the monument and that this whole bunch of people would come together in that one place and I thought that that would be a very nice thing to start off to kick it off. It being Elena's documentary and activist project Fatherland a Monument to Freedom which aims to revitalize the memorial complex called the Monument to Freedom in Kochani, North Macedonia. The 1981 monument commemorates the struggles of Macedonian people in the first half of the 20th century. The Spomenik comprises a number of walls shaped around an amphitheater and featuring nine large mosaic friezes created by Elena's father, Gligor Chemerski. Since 1991, the monument complex has fallen into disrepair, and through a number of interventions, including theater performances, Elena is collaborating with a range of people to revive, if not reinvent, the monument as a community space. The play's announcement stated the performance was part of an attempt to reopen the existing and discover new perspectives towards the possibilities that the Monument to Freedom could offer to the citizens of Kochani, as well as anyone else who feels or could potentially feel this space as their own. End quote. Elena and Fatherland, a Monument to Freedom, will headline an upcoming episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. The night of the performance, it really became a festive night for the whole of the town of Kochani. People came, they were so happy, like everybody was well-dressed, and the theater play <laughs> lasted for a half an hour longer than it should have uh, originally because people enjoyed playing that so much. And so this was very, very encouraging start because it was really like this big festive occasion and everybody was so happy that you could see that there is material to be worked around here and that it's not just my idea of how it should be or but that there are a lot of people who feel the same and who would uh, gladly participate and contribute in some way to this. Kochani is Natalia Teodosieva's hometown and the monument... One of my favorite places. 
I have a lot of stories there on the monument. And it was a pleasure for me to play in front of my home audience. I love this place so much and I was more than proud to be performing there. And the place was awesome. It was like magical night. It was summer night uh, and the auditorium was full. There was no free seat. I was nervous like never before. I was performing here at my favorite place, my town, friends, family, they all were here. And my colleagues too, you know, they felt the, the energy as well. Something like magic happened. Everything fell in the right place. This event brought the people from Kochani together, even if it was for a couple of hours only. In the description of the performance in her master's thesis on the Fatherland Monument to Freedom project at St. Jo's School of Art and Design at Sertogenbos, the Netherlands, Elena wrote, The visitors, the theater crew, the monument, and the surrounding environment mutually engaged in a complex web of relations where each element enhanced the life and the energy of the other. The narrative of the play intertwined with the narrative of the monument, and then they intertwined with the narrative we, who were present, produced at that moment in that place. It was as if all the spirits of the characters of the play, the faces of the people that fought against fascism and the spirits that the monument honors, came and sat beside us for a while. There were like a lot of people who were there and said, uh, this is what we miss here in our town. This is the right thing to do here on this monument. This is what it, this monument was made for, to just bring people together, to go there, see theater, see concerts, you know, maybe some exhibitions and every kind of uh, events that brings people together. The same year, there was a huge um, festival that was um, made by uh, local people, by local musicians, and it was called Freedom Music Festival. And it had two editions. The next year I went to it, I had a great time. There were like 2,000, maybe more people dancing on the stage all around the, the monument. It was like the monument was reborn. Elena hesitates to take credit, but it would seem her efforts around the monument are paying off. The municipality currently is quite keen on on uh, regaining its former sort of glory, let's say. I think that there are different um, people and different efforts that are being done in order to restore this monument in all its um, utilitarian um, potential. All these collaborations and now multiple parallel efforts are key to reviving the monument and the local community and by the local community. This sort of friendships that came out of it, and these are not empty words, I'm not just saying it because uh, solidarity sounds nice, but because really um, you see that there is a lot of people who come from their own background and have their own sort of like um, a relation to this uh, place and our separate relations to the place connect us into being able to together form something which will continue on in the future and which will be a bit better than not doing anything and remaining in this status quo sort of position. And I think that the status quo position is quite uh, a painful point for many of us who come from countries such as Macedonia, which don't have on their own the power, the manpower, the brain power, the organizational sort of infrastructure, the anything to sort of get out of this vortex of uh, deterioration in which they have fallen. So I think that such smaller maybe and very often completely enthusiastic groupings and uh, decisions to work together towards something, I think they're really healthy and they produce a culture that is alive. Mm -hmm.
čeká, borba te čeká, borba te čeká. A prema ke dončele lekade se spremaš, borba te čeká, borba za sloboda, borba za sloboda, za Makedonija, za Makedonija. Zemlja porobena, neka razbera, kletite fašisti, makedonsko ime, nema da zagine. A pre makedonče lele kade se spremaš, Borba te čeka, borba za sloboda, borba za sloboda, za Makedonija, za Makedonija, zemlja porobena, neka razbera, kletite fašisti, makedonsko ime, nema da zagine. Momci naredeni, momi nagiteni, borba ke odan, borba za sloboda, borba za sloboda, za Makedonija, za Makedonija, zemlja porobena, neka razbera, kletite fašist. Makedonsko ime nema da zagine. A black and white photograph shows a solid white blob in the shape of a tower with protrusions up the middle and pointed at the top, set against the background of a village square beneath a hill enveloped in fog. Under the photo, handwritten notes. Solid tone. Crows. School kids walk past, talking. The rumble of traffic. One block back from the main street of a small town. The Spominic sits in a small square. On one side a car park, mostly empty. Small shops on one side, the rear of Main Street shops on the other side. A council housing block on the other side. And on the last side of the car park is a sports oval. A motorbike through the car park, riding above the oval gate. Beyond the playing field, the ground slopes down into a valley. A creek down there, maybe? There's rubbish strewn throughout the car park, and the occasional bird. Various conversations. An older woman accompanies a small child. A stray cat. The sun has gone behind the clouds. Doors shut. That's D.A. Calf, an Australian sound researcher and artist, reading notes he took while recording that ambient sound at the monument to the local fighters and victims of the People's Liberation War in Bratunac, Bosnia and Herzegovina.
The sound recording, the manipulated photograph, and the text appear at the website of his project as Spectral Geology, which investigates, quote, new conceptions of the relationship between sound, memory, historical agency, and time, end quote. For this project, DA made 10-minute recordings of ambient sound at 23 Yugoslav socialist monuments, photographed the monuments, then obscured the monument structures themselves with a white overlay, and described the scene in his own words below. I spoke to DA, David, last December, shortly after he launched the project website, spectralgeology.info. I guess from my philosophy background and together with a sound background, I, I came to think that there's something more to be investigated in that connection. I tend to say to people that I'm medium agnostic, so I'm most comfortable in sound, but whatever gets the job done, whatever illustrates the concept or investigates the, the problem most aptly is, is what I'll use. So what is the problem? <laughs> well, there, there, are, there are myriad problems that I guess I th- I'm addressing in, in my work. One of the most obvious, I think, is the way that the way that we tell history, the way that history can be co-opted, and I think connecting it to the region that we are interested in mutually, we can see how history has been co-opted into the nationalist movements and arguments. You know, it's it's good to deal with the past and to move from it into some more constructive future, and so I think that. Sound has a has a role potentially to play in that process. And so I'm sort of looking at sound from a geological perspective. We all know what geologists do and, and they can look back through the strata of, of things and, and, and tell things about the past, uh, which is I would say is a bottom-up way of doing history as opposed to a top-down one, which is when, for instance, nationalist governments impose upon a region, a people's, a nation, a orthodox historical narrative. So that's probably the prime issue that, I, that I'm dealing with. Hi there, it's me, Peter Korchnag, the creator and producer of Remembering Yugoslavia with a quick peek at the making of the podcast. I interview people across the Balkans and beyond and spend a good amount of time and energy writing and recording and editing to bring you these stories, interviews and analysis two to four times a month. It is your support that makes this reporting possible. Ensure I can cover the next important story and keep the memory of the country that no longer exists alive by supporting me on Patreon. Please go to patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia or donate one time at paypal.me slash rememberingyou. That's paypal.me slash rememberingyou. And donate today. All right, back to the story. What does that look like in real life in terms of your art? In what ways do physics, geology, and history intersect in your work? at the Yugoslav Socialist Monuments. There's probably two parallel sort of lines of research that somewhat by chance sort of meet up. And and one of them is what you would call sonic materialism, which is what is sound itself and, and where does it live and what does it adhere to and what can it tell us and what's it a vehicle for? I started to think about this speculative concept of geological forms of sound. We think of sound as something that exists within a certain subdivision of the frequency spectrum that humans can hear. We define sound as that 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz to be technical. We also think of it as something that if it can't move our tympanic membrane, our our eardrum, then it's not really a sound. And I'm trying to be a bit more speculative and trying to expand that. So what that says is if you hit something, it makes ripples in matter and in wave form and it strikes your eardrum and you can hear it. But over time, that force 
the volume of that sound depletes to a point where it's no longer audible. And I'm thinking about what happens if that's not the case? What happens if if we can still speculate or even imagine those sounds, even if even if it's not moving our, our tympanic membrane to the point where we think of it as audible, it's still there. And what if it's still moving, still vibrating at a very, very small amplitude, but it's laying in the so- in soil like the fossils of creatures or dead skin cells? They're all still there and they, they create this sort of stratified earth that exists in every site that if we have the right tools – we can exhume and examine, and it, for geologists, it tells them something about the past. I'm thinking speculatively about sound being able to potentially do the same thing. So that's one strand. The other strand is the sheer density of human stories, conflict, forgetting contestation that's happened in the Western Balkans in the last, let's say, 150 years. And for me, the Spominics can potentially be understood as loci of those contestations and stories. So obviously you have the political contestations, which continue to date. Some of them have been forgotten. Some have been dynamited. Some have been erased. Some are still commemorated. But around these Spominics, you have people that are just going about their daily business. They live there. And then going into history, the problem in in the region and the problem across the world is how history can be co-opted. Now, if we look at those sites and we look at the surroundings of them and not the story that's been plonked on there and we've, and we've said this is an important battle, this has, to, this has to be subservient to this new story we're going to tell about this nation. Instead, we look at those everyday people who are existing there trying to survive, the, the family stories, the tales, the things that they lost, the things that they gained, the things that they still remember. And how can we think about those stories being told by the sounds that live dormant in the earth in those sites. Okay, so that's the logistics, so to speak, of a spectral geology. Does the project have any aspirational aims in terms of, let's say, bettering the humankind? I think the thing to remember is it's very speculative. The things that I've tried to bring together, no physicist, no scientist would say, you're right, you've discovered some connection that we've <laughs> we've never... I have no scientific training, I need to note that. But what I'm thinking about is what approach to these sites, to thinking about history, to memory studies, can we get from imagining these these connections actually being possible? And for me, what that means is, I guess, a gentler way of doing history that listens more and orders less. So in history, quite often, you know, we say that the victors tell the story of history. It's the loudest voices and I think that brushes over a whole lot of really important stories that are history as well. All of our memories of our past are a form of history as well. And I think that if we did history in a way that was more like that rather than the way it's done now, I think we'd have a more harmonious existence in many contested areas. We know that things are troublesome in the Western Balkans in terms of how history is co-opted. So wouldn't this be a possible better way to do things? But I must say, I'm totally not trying to be prescriptive. I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do or anything. I mean, this is a methodology that I'm trying to generate that would also be applicable to other parts of the world. It just happens that it coincided with my my deep interest in that region. And then also, I feel like the density of the stories in that region make it quite apt for a first place to, to try this methodology. And why these monuments? They're static structures existing in space, often in remote locations. In and of themselves, they're silent. 
It's people that give them meaning, a symbolic voice. I mean, you could tell history better from places that are alive, where people live and work and play, a market or a train station, a cemetery even. Plus, given that they are pieces of visual art or architecture, they're so much more, perhaps even better, presented and represented in photographs. Like anyone, when I first became aware of the, mom- of the Spominics, I was floored. Like, I was taken aback. It's impossible not to be. Yeah, and I wanted to move past that sort of surface-level engagement with them. That's how most people know them, and they never get any further, and they never understand the context in which these uh, were built, commissioned, and continue to exist. And I think it's imperative upon anyone who's interested in them to to dig it a little deeper. And then I realised that all the portrayals of them were through imagery, uh, and that's pretty much how... You know, most documentation happens. The visual primacy is a is a thing. We we tend to like things presented visually. We don't have much patience for anything else. So I, you know, coming from a sound background where I thought deeply about sound and I understood the value of listening deeply, I thought, what happens when we listen to these sites? What happens when we listen to the monuments themselves, but also the sites around them? The way you present your work, the monuments themselves are obscured with white overlays, as though they aren't really what we should be thinking about. When you look at the work and you see the sort of the way I've... Erasure is a bit of a violent word and I don't like to use it, but I'm struggling to find a a better word at the moment. But the way I've sort of erased the actual monuments from the images is to bring up the background and push the foreground back a little bit. We always see the, the sort of more figurative portrayals of these monuments, but we're sort of ignoring the context in which they sit. That's the bottom up history. The people who still live nearby, or and for them, it, and it's just like an old tree that's been there for quite a while. It's a thing, but they don't think about it every day. For me, it's not just about finding the most architecturally striking ones. You know, I respect the works as architectural design pieces, and I think that's really important. And you know, I'm really interested in the work of people like Sanya Hovatinjic, who you've profiled, and and some of the other people that you've talked to. But that's not my main bent. For me, it doesn't matter whether the, the spomonic that I'm uh, listening to is intact, whether it's been demolished but the rubble is still in situ, or whether it's a site where there once was a spomonic but it's been erased. I've tried not to curate that element too much. How does a short recording of ambient sound at a monument site at any particular time tell the story of that monument, of that place? I don't think it's meant to tell the story, but it tells a story. I haven't spent that much time in any one of those sites, so how could I possibly claim to sort of be able to sum up that site? The randomness of when I was there and what became audible in that site when I was there and when I was recording, that's fascinating as well. And what it tells us about history is that there are so many chance occurrences, you know, so many things that we don't hear, that we don't write down, but are all consequential. So where does your fascination with former Yugoslavia or the Balkans in general originate? How did you start on the path to a spectral geology? I grew up in a household where the news and current affairs were a topic of daily discussion. I was aware that things were happening in what is now the former Yugoslavia. I didn't understand them. I remember all of the sort of terms and, and I remember finding it quite confusing. And then at one point, a new kid turned up at school. And he was from what is now North Macedonia. And I seemed to be one of the only people who knew what he was talking about, or at least had heard some of the words and was interested to sort of welcome into him into the community. And, um, and I was just really intrigued. So I asked a lot of questions. And that was before the 
official breakdown of Yugoslavia. That would have been about 89, I think. And then sort of kept in check with it. There's, a, there's quite a large diaspora community from the Western Balkans in Australia. And so then having friends in the intervening sort of 20 to 30 years and being the one that really wanted to ask them questions, sometimes maybe a little overbearingly so. And then I've always been interested in geography, particularly human geography. 20th century European history has has always been of great fascination to me, um, political history particularly. I first visited the region um, about five years ago and just fell in love with it. And even though I also recognised there was a lot in the region that wasn't idyllic, I could feel the darkness straight away. And I felt that that was something to investigate. And so I basically just became obsessed from that point um, and have been back subsequent times. I would have gone back mid-year this year, obviously. It was impossible. It's not unusual to hear of people who, you know, find themselves in a place and just for the rest of their life become obsessed with it, move there and and feel something in that place that really is either of them or really connects to them. And and that's really what I got. And sometimes I describe my project as a way of understanding myself through another space. And even though I don't have genetic links as far as I know with the space and with the region, I'm figuring myself out as I'm doing the fieldwork, as I'm trying to learn about the people there and trying to connect with them and, and, and the past that's happened there. To me, it's still enigmatic. I actually find that sort of um, intoxicating in myself, and that's probably what's driven the obsession. But I also have to step back constantly and question, am I being voyeuristic here? Am I just being a tourist? I uh, go back often to Maria Todorova's concept of Balkanism. That's been an important sort of um, check-in point for me. That's the last thing I want to do is be a, a voyeur or a tourist or take advantage of anyone else's stories. And what's next for spectral geology? Are you going to continue working on the project? And what comes after? You know, it's a resolved form in the way it exists, but I also see it as potentially a continuing archive to which I will add new sites, but also new elements for each of those sites. But they're also not meant to be exhaustive. That's totally counter to what I'm trying to do. So I think I want to move more towards some of this research into actual community and social stories about memories of these sites. So before this outcome, which is sort of an online archive, there was actually a book that was being built. And um, my hope is that there will be some published work uh, in 2021. I'll be commencing soon a doctoral candidature uh, here in Australia. And the main beginning stages of that is looking at the diaspora community here and looking at their memories of these sites. Now, f- for some of them, they might almost n- have no no memory, or they might their memory of them might be they've seen a photo of them, or they they heard that their grandparents once you know used to have to go out there in school groups and visit these sites. But that's all they have, and to me, that's valuable as well. You know, I talk a lot in the work about the phenomenology of of memory. Memory slips. It's scattered, it's fragmentary, you know, and so hearing someone talk about something that they have this vague memory of, but it definitely has an inculcation in their life and in their history. That's the next stage. I think that would be really fascinating. Sinisha Labrovic, Elena Chemerska, and D.A. Kaff are among a handful of artists who have intervened in Yugoslav socialist monuments. 
Igor Grubich has tied red scarves around the faces of memorial busts of partisans around Croatia and made an experimental documentary about the Spomenici. The secret mapping experiment has projected abstract images on the monuments at Podgarich and Bubanje at night. Kristina Leko is in the middle of a multi-year collaborative project at monuments to 20th century wars. The way I see it, when life gives you memory politics lemons, you make art lemonade. The other interesting point Sanja Horvatinčić has brought up in a recent conversation with me is this. The kind of artists who today protest official policies or lack thereof to World War II monuments with their interventions, around Croatia in particular, oppose the construction of spectacular monuments during the era of socialist Yugoslavia. I guess you have to leave it to artists to raise a voice against the government politics du jour. And to show what art is for. I'm no art critic. I judge art along a simple question. Does it speak to me in any way? Eyes, ears, brain, heart. Art that makes me feel and think. Art that engages with the world. Art that, to use a cliché, makes the world a better place. Art that preserves, restores and revives the memory of something positive. Art that brings people together, that moves them forward. Now that's the kind of art I can get behind. Next time on Remembering Yugoslavia. Across former Yugoslavia and beyond, songs of the partisan struggle, resistance and revolution reverberate anew. Why is that? And who's that singing over there? On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, activist choirs and the songs they sing. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, photographs, and the transcript of this episode in the show notes at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. If you like the show, tell a friend or two. If you also have a minute to spare, give us a star rating or write a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have some unbudgeted cash on hand, dedicate it to the podcast and become a monthly supporter on Patreon. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petric. Additional music by No Sense, Pa and Petar Alargic, licensed under Creative Commons. Songs by Sara Renar and Zbor Praxa played with permission and eternal gratitude. By their music. Special thanks to Sanja Horvatinčić and Aquarius Music Publishing. I am Petar Kurchniak. Ciao.